Hi, this is producer Todd. I wanted to thank you for listening to this episode of Classical Classroom. We hope you've been enjoying our show on many of the podcasting outlets, iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn. We've added Spreaker recently. There's uh, more and more. So let us know if there's other ones that you like. We will look into that. And also, we would love when you do visit these sites to let us know what you think of the show by rating and reviewing. And of course, sharing with people would be great. We'd enjoy that too. Thank you. All the support you give us helps our show, Classical Classroom, as well as classical music in general. Enjoy the show. My name is Daisha Clay. I'm the audio librarian here at Classical 91.7. While I'm a real librarian, I have a deep, dark secret. I know very little about classical music. I grew up listening to rock. And I know something about jazz. But when it comes to classical... But I really want to learn. So... Every week on this show, a classical music expert will give me a piece of classical music they think I should know, and then we'll discuss it. Come learn with me in the Classical Classroom. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Classical Classroom. I'm Daisha Clay, and here with me today is Awadajan Pratt. He is a pianist, a violinist, a conductor. Uh, he was actually the first student in the history of the Peabody Conservatory to receive diplomas in all three of those areas. Uh, he's performed and conducted all over the world and the U.S. Uh, with numerous major orchestras. He's a recording artist, and he's currently professor of piano, artist-in-residence, chairman of the piano department, and artist Artistic Director of the Art of the Piano Festival at the College Conservatory of Music at the University of Cincinnati. And he's also founder of the Pratt Music Foundation. Awadajan Pratt, welcome to the Classical Classroom. Thank you very much. Great to be here in class. <laughs> um, so what are you going to be teaching? I'm not in a classroom very often. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, what are you going to be teaching me about today? I'm going to teach you a little bit about uh, Brahms, uh, Johannes Brahms, and his uh, works for, uh, as I should say very correctly, for piano and cello. Okay. Okay. That's great. You know, I I realized before we did this show that we've somehow never actually done a full show on Brahms. And yeah, I know. We've. It's kind of a, you know, inconsequential composer. Right. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) I know. I was like, we we, uh, did. our episode 13 was on a Brahms piece, but, but it wasn't, okay. you know, we didn't really go that in depth about the man himself. So, so I'll ask you, who was Brahms? Like, when was he born? Where? All that good stuff. Brahms was born in 1833 uh, in Hamburg. I, I guess he was sort of, he was very much interested in his early career in being a pianist and studied composition as well obviously, but really had dreams of being a concert pianist. Um, but he presented himself at a young, as a young man to Robert Schumann. Mm-hmm. And it was Robert Schumann who said, you know, here we have finally the next the next Beethoven, uh, which was something that hung as a, a shadow looming over Brahms his entire life. Um, mm-hmm. And you see in many of his works the references to Beethoven and, and his, his study of Beethoven, and in fact a study of all the composers before him. The, the great quote after he wrote his first symphony – 
somebody said to him, you know, this really reminds me of the uh, Ode to Joy of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. Oh, no. And Brahms replied, well, any donkey can notice that. Um, <laughs> so he was really, <laughs> really charming, as you can tell, um, but really uh, tormented by, in a way, by, by the legacy of Beethoven and trying to, to match and perhaps surpass it. Yeah, I do remember learning on a on a show that we did with we were, where we were talking about um, Beethoven that that Brahms, like he was hesitant to write a symphony because he was trying to escape basically the the shadow of of Beethoven, and then like didn't the critics actually call it Beethoven's tenth or something yeah, like exactly. that? Yeah, <laughs> which is just rough. Which is- which is rough, but you know there are worse things that could be said. I, <laughs> have yeah. been said about people's compositions. And That's true. Time. So, yeah. uh, aside from Schumann, like who were his contemporaries? Um, well, a lot of important composers, including uh, Richard Wagner. Uh, the other composer that's quite interesting uh, as it relates to Brahms is Dvorak because in a similar way in which Schumann mentored uh, and was a supporter of Brahms, uh, Brahms held the same role for uh, Antonin Dvorak and presented his music to his publishers, which is really a, a, a rare thing to do. And, and uh, while uh, Dvorak spent some time in the United States, uh, Brahms was taking care of, of um any manuscripts that, that Dvorak would send and in fact invited Dvorak to come if he moved. I forget where Brahms was living at the time, but if, if, if Dvorak moved there, like Brahms would give his entire state to Dvorak. Um, so that was an important uh, contemporary for, for Brahms. Yeah, sounds like it. Wow. Well, you you recorded Brahms' works for cello and piano with Zul Bailey. Um, yeah. So, so tell us about these pieces, and and I'm I'm wondering after after what we've just said, like did did he do this kind of work kind of before writing that symphony? Was it kind of he was uh, spinning his wheels? <laughs> like, yeah. Not... Interestingly, he wrote symphonic works uh, before. So, for instance, his piano concerto before getting around to the symphony. But this uh, first cello sonata is Opus 38, so it's uh, considerably earlier. And in true fashion, the last cello sonata by Beethoven ends with a fugue. And in Brahms' first, uh, actually I say cello sonata, but in my introduction, I mentioned the the properly titled uh, sonata for piano and cello, which is actually how Brahms uh, entitled it, which is how Beethoven also wrote the title for his pieces. Everybody thinks of them as cello sonatas or violin sonatas, but Hmm. with those composers, they were written for piano and another instrument. But anyway, the Brahms' first sonata for piano and cello uh, concludes with a fugue also, just like Beethoven's last sonata did. So he uh, still felt that influence and or inspiration you could say yeah that's it's really crazy to think of somebody like Brahms who is now known as like one of the big daddies as being so kind of derivative at his beginning well I think that you know a lot of composers are I mean even Beethoven himself was the derivative of Mozart and of Haydn but it wasn't quite as public, mm-hmm. you know. There was no great proclamation that you are the next. And they're interesting, you know. Beethoven was, oh, Beethoven was Beethoven. So, <laughs> but there's a great quote that uh, good composers borrow, 
great composers steal. So, <laughs> so there you have it. I think that's true of most artists. I mean, I mean, pretty yeah. much everybody that that I can think of who we think of as a kind of revolutionary figure in the art world, be it, you know, writers, painters, what have you, they all kind of started out grappling with their inspiration, you know, like kind of, and then out of that struggle is sort of born their great contribution to, to art, you know, that's, it's an, it's interesting to see that play out over and over again in the history of the arts. Right. Right. Yeah. So true. I, I'm. We should probably hear a little bit of music. We haven't done that yet. Okay. Um, which which piece should we start uh, with? Well, I guess we could start with fugue. We've been talking about that a little bit, and I think that um, you know Brahms was a com- complicated person in his personality. Like very, he could be charming if he wanted to be, but he was often very acerbic. He often had you know he had to he broke and repaired and broke and repaired relationships with people over the course of of his lifetime, and, huh. and I think that. Some of that uh, emotional complexity, like it was different, difficult for him to express himself. And mm-hmm. having a tight form in which to work, like a fugue, I think it was something that was really appealing to him. So he wrote uh, fugues show up like in the Brahms, the Brahms Handel variations, variations and fugue on a theme of Handel. Uh, they show up in his Requiem. Um, things like Passacaglia, which is a repeating bass line, show up in the last movement of his fourth symphony and what are called the Brahms Haydn variations as well. So why don't we listen maybe to this, uh, the last movement of the um, Opus 38 uh, Brahms. Okay, sounds for good. Piano and cello. All right. interesting about this is that it, it's kind of like the the pairing of the two instruments mm-hmm. sounds really kind of complex and contemporary but then when you listen yeah. to just the piano like I'm hearing some some of that early music ornamentation baroque ornamentation yeah, yeah. is, is well, that happening that's or am a great I just observation <laughs> and it's a great observation and Brahms was in fact very much influenced by Baroque and pre-Baroque. Uh, he um, studied composers of the Renaissance. He studied uh, Bach and Handel. When there was a first edition of, of Handel Suites came out, he, he wanted the you know the very first run on it. Mm-hmm. He studied the works of Bach meticulously. He, he would write out copy 
Bach's work in his own hand and then like circle places where Bach made quote unquote theoretical mistakes, <laughs> but try and figure out why, you know, what was the reason for Bach to do this and so forth. So he was very much uh, influenced by obviously them, so not just Beethoven, but, but all the music that came before him. He was very much a student of that. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of, um, I don't know, I'm thinking of, of kind of uh, a resurgent movement in, in music. I think about like grunge mu- music. Where, mm-hmm. you know, things had gotten really electronic in the 80s and kind of kind of fluffy. And then right. the grunge movement came about and kind of brought back that sort of big Led Zeppelin sort of, you know, guitar and drum sound. And right. But they added, you know, this twist to it, which was this sort of sarcastic contemporary irony in the, in the lyrics and things like that. Interesting, yeah. 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 And... Uh, yeah, so it kind of sounds like that's what Brahms was doing. Grunge. Brahms the grunge. <laughs> Brahms <artist>. was grunge. <laughs> Brunge. Br- <laughs> oh my God, we just created a new musical form. Yeah. bit about Brahms's kind of arc as an artist. Where did these cello and piano pieces fall? I mean, you know, you talked about how he kind of waited a really long time to write a symphony. Yeah. What was, what did he start out writing? Where did the symphonies come in? Where did these pieces fall in that arc? Uh, he started out writing, uh, because he was a pianist, uh, piano sonatas. He wrote his first two pieces were piano sonatas, Opus 1 and Opus 2. Opus 5, his third sonata, is probably the most popular uh, in terms of performance. He wrote variation sets. Um, he wrote a lot of things before he got around to the variation sets that I play. For instance, the Brahms Handel versions are Opus 24. Mm-hmm. The first sonata is Opus 38. The second sonata is Opus 99, uh, which is towards the latter part of his life. The interesting thing about the cello sonatas is the first one was written for a singing professor who was an amateur cellist. Mm-hmm. And that was, you were talking about the textures of that of that fugue movement. There's a anecdote that, you know, no one ever knows if these things were really said, but but with Brahms, you could believe it, that at some point the guy, you know, he's an amateur and he's trying to keep up with Brahms playing Brahms sonata. And, and at some point he says, maestro, um, I, I could barely hear myself. And Brahms <laughs> looks over and says, lucky you. Continues <laughs> 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 playing on, you know. And you can tell in that piano part there, it gets it gets pretty pretty uh, hefty at times. Um, but there was a cellist who played that sonata a lot named Hausmann. And so later in his life, Brahms wrote a sonata dedicated to Hausmann, which is this uh, F major sonata, mm-hmm. which I think falls right after, I haven't thought about this, but I think it falls right after the Fourth Symphony, which I think is Opus 98, mm-hmm. uh, and then the sonata is Opus 99. Really, the F major sonata is... Um, really different in a way. Although if you hear the first one of the second to the last one of the, of the first, you might hear a similar kind of muscularity. It might be interesting to hear a little of the second movement. You'll hear some of the um, really intense expression. And then there's something, uh, one of Brahms' tendencies that I'll, I'll describe in the last movement. Okay.
So you get an idea yeah. of what that movement is. There's more of that there. Then if you cue up the next movement, mm-hmm. you have a lot of uh, kind of stormy drama. Uh-huh. We hear a little bit of that. All right. So it's, you could say it's it's not necessarily argumentative, but it's mm-hmm. different sides of the, the same coin, right? I mean, it's just yeah. um, um, uh, back and forth, back and forth. And so you you have the, we didn't listen to the first one, but it's, it starts out quite muscularly. Then you have that lovely second one. Then you have the third one, and then Brahms has this thing which I I, I kind of think of as the Edith Bunker syndrome. And so <laughs> he's done all these different things, and at the end he just you know I don't know whether what she said you know okay I've got some cookies and, and, and he goes to this the last movement is just it's sunny it's light um, it's as if nothing ever happened. Um, you know, we can listen to a little bit of that, and then it, it gets even more, uh, more in that direction. That the, the coda, where it's a little pizzicato at the, at the end of the movement. Can we just listen yeah. to a little bit of this last one? Everything's hunky dory, you know, <laughs> and a lot of a lot, he took a lot of influence for also from uh, folk songs and stuff. So huh. we're all just all happy together. You can hear her sing, "Oh, Archie." Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <That's> exactly. <laughs> He does a similar thing in the in the um, f- second piano concerto, which again has all these similar qualities in the first three movements, and the last one is just it's just very. It's I think it's a real um, re- reflection of his, his kind of psychology. Yeah, you were you were talking about his relationships being kind yeah. of mended and broken, all, you know, yeah, over and over yeah, again, yeah. and yeah, you kind of like. Um, there's like a tension between the cello and piano where it's like they're they're not even talking to each other some of the yeah, time sometimes. they're just kind yeah, of doing yeah, their yeah, own yeah, thing yeah following their own contrapuntal area do you hear all this drama What's going to happen? 
little pizzicato. On to the next episode. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So it's, yeah, it's it's interesting to to see those kinds of patterns. And, well, but it's it's a great piece. Well, great piece. Is this the thing? Okay, so I love this music. It's wonderful, and I've yeah. I've heard other Brahms music that I I really like. But I wonder what it is that makes him one of the big daddies of classical music like wh- like what is his major contribution is it is it his complexity of emotion that we've talked about or what would you say yeah i think that i think that um among the great attributes of, of Brahms is that he's, he's actually a much more tuneful composer than Beethoven was. Beethoven was really motivically oriented. If you think of the Fifth Symphony, bam, 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 bam. That's that's you're not. It's a, you, you'll feel oh, that yeah. energy of that, but it's not a great tune. So Brahms had had beautiful soaring melodies. He also was a great manipulator of rhythm. Um, he knew how to just create an ebb and flow within a piece in terms of rhythm and in terms of time you know so there are a lot of things in Brahms where instead of yum bum dum bum he would go so take you sort of across the one two three four one is an important beat in classical music and you sort of four one two three four one and sort of create a a different kind of wave underneath that pulse or on top of that pulse you might say and I think that with within Brahms you know so he's in the romantic period uh, full of you know this great wide open expression and yet he managed to do it in a tight frame you know so he was always working whether it was in a fugue or a, a pasacaglia or in a sonata type form where he has to put all of this expression in the frame it's never um never anything outside of the line so to speak uh you know if you're <laughs> i have a two-year-old so you, 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 things are always outside the lines yeah but he managed <laughs> to put it all inside the lines, which creates an incredible tension because, you know, there are people that put it in the lines very neatly in a way without without tension because they're not trying to say much except keep it in the lines. And mm-hmm. he was really trying to say a ton and put it in the lines. And he also manipulated that form sometimes to make it even tighter. Like some, he had some uh, formal and structural innovations that made that that those forms even tighter sometimes. And so... You know, I think people walk away after listening to Brahms and have a, a great sense of the of his humanity, yeah. you know, including his, you know, the the good parts of Brahms and the bad parts of Brahms, which we have, you know, the good and bad parts of ourselves. And I think the, to you, you, there's a real direct relationship and correlation there that listeners can hear. You know. And perhaps most importantly, the beard. We have the beard. <laughs> we have the beard. Yes, which has made a comeback. Beard. Like Todd yeah. is currently rocking uh, kind of a pre-Brahms beard situation. Oh, really? Yeah, it's pretty. Well, I started my beard in 1988. <laughs> wow. And, uh, I have uh, 
if if I sort of pull out these hairs here, like some of them, if I if I ever decided to take a what do you take a curling iron or something to straighten it? Uh-huh. <laughs> What's it called? A curling iron? Oh, like a straight, flattening what do you iron? Stra- yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, so uh, if I ever took one, I mean, they, they, I would look a little bit ridiculous, like ZZ, ZZ, ZZ top, right? If you ever do that. Please yeah. send a picture. Send you guys a yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, before but yeah, we... I'm a, I'm a fan of the beards. So. <laughs> yeah, we like Brahms. You know, I was I was wondering when I was looking over the CD. Um, mm-hmm. I noticed that these pieces, in addition to like their opus names, they yeah. have uh, these interesting titles. The, like oh. the, the 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 names of the there's like the name of the piece and then the and then the opus kind of cataloging. Right. Uh, number. Um, can you talk about the names of the pieces? Are those some <laughs> of the song transcriptions? Maybe that you're referencing. I don't or know. Are you talking about the like? What? What are the like? Give me an example. It's all in a German, German and uh, Summonsons was one of them. Um, yeah, those were um, song transcriptions. So Brahms wrote a lot of songs during the course of his lifetime, and and at some point in his life, he. It's not known exactly whether he worked out some of these transcriptions or whether they were presented to him and he approved them, but uh, they were transcribed from the voice to the cello. Oh. So from voice and piano to cello and piano. So those are individual individual songs, including, I think we have at the end, the very famous Brahms Lullaby. Uh, we oh, can actually okay. listen to that because it's quite lovely if you Ooh. want to for a minute. Yeah, let's do that. It's I I don't know if this is just Zool Bailey's playing or if mm-hmm. if was Brahms big on making a lot of notations and telling musicians how they should play the music or does he leave a lot of room for adding your own Well Brahms and... has a fair number of instructions uh however in these songs I think the nuance that you hear is is uh is Zool's interpretation Yeah like it sounds like he's kind of dragging the bow a little bit like there are these little touches I hear well, he has children that are now, you know, close to 10 and 12 or whatever, but at a certain point uh, they were much younger and sometimes he'd be gone on a trip and he would come home and he might have just missed them in terms of going to bed or something, but he would play, you know, like the lullaby or something. Or Sometimes it was their bedtime, you know, little song. And so I think that's always in his mind when he plays those pieces. So it's a little bit more than, than just the beautiful lullaby. There's something quite personal um, in it. Yeah, yeah, it's very, for lack of a better word, kind of, kind of emotive. Like, like there's some kind of undercurrent, aside from the soothing sound of a lullaby in it. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> the madness right. of having children, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> there is that sometimes. Indeed. Indeed. Before we go. I want to know why you like Brahms music so much that you decided to record a CD of it. Like, what? What? Well, just personally, yeah. why do you why do you dig it? You know, I've I can't remember the first piece of Brahms that I heard. I would imagine it's the first symphony, but I don't know exactly. I know that the first pieces I started to play. Well, and I, the first piece that I, I think greatly affected me was the first piano concerto. I found that there's a um, you know, Brahms could do this thing of having 
this music that sounds like bum 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 beam uh, exists at the same time with something that's and he could put them on top of each other happening you know construct the piece so that they seem like they're opposing forces yeah and then there comes a point in the uh, recapitulation when the music or everything comes back at the end where he has them happening at the same time yeah. and I think sort of you feel that kind of in a visceral way um, and then understanding it as a musician in an intellectual way. You know, I've always been fascinated by the intellectual capacity of these composers. It's astonishing. And so I played the first concerto. I played, then was introduced to the later, even later than the second sonata, uh, Piano Works of Brahms, which have this, you know, meditative, a lot of a meditative um, contemplative quality. And so there was, I, you know, and then, the, of course, the stuff in the early part, the Brahms Handel variations that I've played. I've always played Brahms. Like, I've always felt like that sort of um, tension between expression and intellectual rigor was mm-hmm. really, really appealing to me. So when, you know, I recorded, the first piece I recorded were the Opus 10 ballads, which are, have an interesting story, and then the Brahms Handel variations, and I did the Opus 117 late pieces. And I love Brahms Tamer music. So when Zul, you know, Zul and I met at Peabody, and uh, we'd been playing together for a number of years, and, and uh, the opportunity presented itself to record these pieces, and, mm-hmm. and uh, I leapt on it. I like that. I like the the... That he's just, I mean, because very few human emotions or very few parts of the human experience, being alive, are very clear cut. You know, if you're, if you're mm-hmm. like a kind of thinking person, right. there are very few moments in our lives where we were just like, I feel absolutely this way. Even when you're feeling right. at your happiest, you know, there's like right. this kind of right. nagging feeling that, oh, this moment of happiness is about to die. It's about to go. go. Right. <laughs> it's all right. ephemeral, right. you know. Right. Right. Yeah, and you, you're true. saying you can kind of hear that in his music. I kind of yeah. like that. That's really cool. Well, what piece should we go out on? You know, uh, let's see. Well, how about the, the first the first movement or the second sonata? Oh, actually, you know, huh. either first movement because we didn't do any first movements. I think the... Okay. We plug into the middle of the first movement of the of the first sonata. Okay. See what happens. All right, let's see. Oh, great spot. Yeah. Nice. So here in this spot, like the piano and cello are going in opposite directions of the same motive. I mean it's just and it's just intense. Huh. So the, you hear the bass is going one direction, the cello is going the other direction, the bass is the lower the piano. And now they're, now they're going in synchronicity. When he kind of like, I noticed too, he really makes use of, and I don't know if this is what all composers do, I have no clue, but, but like he seems to really make use of both hands on the piano. Like yeah, using most, those also I'm to express have to tension. Say <laughs> most, piano, most piano composers use both hands. No, but uh, I mean they seem to be no, going in, in opposite directions. You know how there's kind of like the tension yeah. between the cello and the piano? Absolutely. There seems to be tension within the piano. There's parts tension too. within the piano and within within each voice of the piano and within each voice against the or with the cello as, as the case may be. Yeah. That's absolutely a great observation. Okay. Yeah. I was I wasn't totally no, I was being funny with it, but yeah, that was a great observation. <laughs> so now we shift here. 
you can hear in the left hand that thing I was talking about. So if we go one, two, three, four, if you listen to the bass of the left hand, it's going B, um, two, sorry, one, two, the cello has enough. Four, one, four, one, two, three, four, one. It's going across that, so it's not huh. one, two, three, four. That's a great example of it, so it just keeps carrying you across the bar line. Yeah. No. D, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. Oh, yeah. One. So you have that tension against this, you know, the cello line. They're just, just very uh, straightforward and beautiful. Yeah. Now, because now we get to some juice coming up. There's also always a real virility. Uh, so he has that tender lullaby stuff, then there's this stuff here. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's sort of the gruff, you know. Yeah. The gruff side, and but also really powerful. in Brahms music. <laughs> <laughs> so the right hand has this steady one, two, three, and the left hand is deep, boom, deep, boom. So across this, you know, as a pianist or musician, you know, early in your life, which I did, like these pieces are also ones that I, um, this sonata and a couple of Beethoven sonatas and a couple of Brahms violin sonatas that I, pieces that I memorized, which you usually don't memorize chamber music, but the violinist and I or the cellist and I memorized these pieces and went on stage with them. It was really, um, you know, you learn these pieces in your 20s. It's just, it's intense. You can hear how beautiful they are and how powerful. Yeah, they really are. I love the the motive that you said. Like we didn't hear the first part, but but when it came back, it's really cool. Well, Aladdin Pratt, it has been so much fun to talk to you. I I feel like um, this has been a really awesome introduction to a composer that I really didn't know very well. So thanks for for being in the classical classroom today. 
Absolutely my pleasure. Thank you for, for having me. All right, everybody, that about does it for this episode of Classical Classroom. For more Classical Classroom, just go to houstonpublicmedia.org backslash classroom, or for a complete list of all of the shows we've ever done in the history of ever, go to soundcloud.com backslash classical classroom. You can listen on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, really. Where can't you listen to us? Make sure to rate and review us however you listen. Send me an email at dclay at houstonpublicmedia.org or follow us on Twitter and Tumblr. Thanks today to audio producer Todd. Are you there, Todd? It's me, Daisha Halslander. Thanks to program director Sinjin Flynn for this award. Thanks to Mark DeClaudio for his piercing hazel eyes. Thanks to Awadajan Pratt for taking time out of his unbelievably busy schedule to be here. Thanks to me for saying words. But most of all, thanks to you for listening. We'll catch you next time. Thank you.